a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, this program exists because I know there are people out there who are doing their honest best to try to find factual, credible, non-agendized information which can help them better understand the world around them. How do I know this? Because I'm one of them. (laughs) I'm working day and night to try to make sense of what's happening around us to position myself and my loved ones to, well, first of all, be able to get through it all, but most importantly, to do it with as many of our freedoms intact as possible. Now, that requires some awareness. It also requires some willingness to face unpleasant facts. But most importantly, it requires a willingness to think for ourselves. And I suspect that's why you listen to programs such as this one. Not so I can tell you what to think, but so that you can get a better idea of what's going on and then decide for yourself, does this information add up or not? Whatever the reason, I'm glad you're part of our audience. You know, I I saw a tweet by uh, the musician Zuby. And I'm, I'm really grateful I started following this guy on Twitter just because he really has some great insights. And, and he has just soared in popularity. Some people hate his guts. That's the price you pay. You know, when you, when you start making waves, you know, you're going to attract the haters as well as people who appreciate it. Listen to this observation that he had a few days ago. Zuby said, if somebody had written a dystopian novel that followed the events of 2019 to 2021 then it would have been panned for being too unrealistic, too incoherent, and having too many plot holes. You'd be like, this makes no sense. People aren't that stupid. Think about what he's saying. And the crazy thing is, I think he's right. If somebody two years ago had told us, hey, guys, here's what lies ahead. Here's what the next couple of years are going to be like. This is what it's going to be like for you as 2022 starts out. Most of us would have shook, shook our heads in disbelief and just said, get on some better meds. Seriously. Yet here we are. And, and there are so many things coming at us. How do you know what's, what's worth focusing on? What's just fear porn? In other words, what, are, what is being used just to keep me scared, uncertain, you know, off balance? Well, let's start with the free speech. I think it's as good a place as any to start today since this this program, and like many others like it, depends on free speech. And, you know, it's more than just a lofty ideal. It's more than just a convenient loophole to, you know, sit there and uh, make noise in the public square. Free speech is an essential part of your freedom of conscience. And I've got a great editorial here from uh, the board at Issues and Insights warning about the murdering of free speech in America. Listen to this take. They say, in Cato's 15th letter, the writers who compiled a series of essays under a pen name inspired by the Roman senator who stood against the tyranny of Julius Caesar argued that freedom of speech is the great bulwark of liberty. They prosper and die together. And the editorial board members say today we are watching that death play out before us. President Joe Biden, whose growing unpopularity is well-deserved, 
continued to carry on last week in what has become a democratic tradition. He asked the private sector to become partners in censorship with the federal government. Biden said during a virtual meeting from the Eisenhower Executive Office building, I make a special appeal to social media companies and media outlets. Please deal with disinformation and misinformation that's on your shows. It has to stop. Now, of course, big tech and the legacy media have been happy to oblige. Journalist Glenn Greenwald tweeted in response to Biden's uh, uh, Biden's uh, will no one get no one rid me of this meddlesome priest proposition. He asked when the majority or he says when the majority of let's try that again. When the leader of the majority party in Washington, D.C. issues a demand, the largest corporations listen. Now, again, so much of the censorship from Google and other tech monopolies is not done on their own accord but rather under pressure and threats from Democratic Party leaders. Now, nearly a year ago, Greenwald wrote in his Substack newsletter that in their zeal for control over online speech, House Democrats are getting closer and closer to the constitutional line if they've not already crossed it. Now, he was referring to the third time in less than five months that lawmakers had summoned the CEOs of social media companies to appear before them with the explicit intent to pressure and coerce them to censor more content from their platforms. A few months later, the Biden administration announced that government officials are working directly with Facebook to limit the spread of misinformation. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki admitted we're flagging problematic posts for Facebook. The White House press corps, the White House itself is flagging posts for Facebook. And then there's Senator Richard Blumenthal, the Democrat from from Connecticut, who has demanded, according to uh, George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley, that big tech companies commit to even more robust content modification. That's an Orwellian term for censorship. And Turley adds, the public is now required to discuss public controversies within the lines and limits set by corporate censors with the guidance of the government. Well, there you go. That's as clear and concise an explanation as you're likely to get. Well, the editorial board at Issues and Insights says, we believe that private companies have the right to determine who may and who may not participate in their forums. And our free press is at liberty to publish or not publish whatever it wishes. As others have said, it's just business, but it can also be personal. That's just the messiness of freedom. But when social media and the press are censoring at the behest of the government, when they become agents of the state, the threat to the First Amendment is real. Now, tyrants have always feared and suppressed speech. And the Democratic Party is lousy with authoritarians who want not to govern but to rule as a single party. We see this in not only their pressure on the private sector to rid them of meddlesome characters who express ideas and make statements they don't like, but also in their legislative agendas. They have an insatiable lust for permanent, unfettered control of government at all levels. That's the democracy, in quotation marks, that Democrats keep talking about saving in the next election. They crave it so intensely, they're willing to kill freedom of speech in exchange for a throne. You know, the crazy thing about this, a very dear friend of mine called it perfectly back in 2016. In fact, he he called it the day after Donald Trump was elected. Reached out to me and said, hey, uh, 
Have you seen the reaction from from the left over Trump getting elected? And of course, at that time, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of re, you know, going on people, you know, losing their minds. And I said, yeah, yeah, I see it. People are not happy. And he said, mark my words. He says, when the Democrats get back into power, he says, they're going to lock this thing down and make sure that no one except who they approve of is ever going to get close to that power again. And at the time, I was like, oh, well, I could see where, you know, they're upset enough. They, they might do something rash, but that's exactly what they've done. And it's, it's a point, unfortunately, that was lost on a lot of people who don't understand. The pendulum swings. And sometimes it tends to hang, you know, a little more to one side than the other, but it always swings back. And this is this, the, the voter rights bills that the Democrats are so desperate to pass. And I think desperation is right is exactly the right word to use here. Have everything to do with nationalizing our elections and putting that control absolutely in the hands of the federal government. One size fits all. Everybody else, shut up and sit down. We'll tell you when we need you. Totally at odds with the concept of federalism. Meaning the states are primarily responsible for the day-to-day governance. And that would largely include, you know, managing their own elections. And the federal government only deals with those things that it's specifically empowered to deal with in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8. Period. Full stop. So I don't know if they're going to succeed in doing this, even if they did. I mean, look, if people didn't have doubts in elections before, if they weren't wondering, well, hey, what? Are we sure this this process is as open and transparent as they claim it's going to be? I mean, you can't even question it. How dare you even say something that undermines our democracy? I agree with the Issues and Insights Board. Their editorial board nailed it. It's, it's not a matter of democracy. It's about control. This threatens our control. And right now there are some folks who are very much determined to be in control. If that means they have to burn down the house with us in it, well, then that's what they're willing to do. I mean, I look, there are some issues in my life where I want to be the control freak, where I am the control freak. Now, I've spent a lot of years learning how to uh, hunt down and root out that little tyrant in my soul that uh, wants control of things. And things got a lot more peaceful. Life got better. I'm just going to say, I think it's a worthwhile thing to not be the tyrant, but also to recognize when someone is trying to be a tyrant to you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAMO.com, Sewing and Quilting Center.com, GovernYourIncome.com, and Monticello College.org. By the way, if you want to subscribe to the show notes, and I, I want to tell you how happy I am every time I every time I go to my email and I see, oh, look, I've got more subscribers. All you have to do to subscribe, go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll see a place you can click for show notes. Click on the latest show notes down at the bottom of the page is a subscribe button. Now, all it's going to ask you for is your email, which I will not sell or will not give or trade or lend to anybody else. 
You're not going to get harassed with a bunch of ads, you know, from uh, different uh, third parties. All this is going to result in is me sending you the show notes so you can check them out for yourself. So if that's if that's of interest to you, please subscribe. I will be happy to add your name to my email list and happy to send this out every day that I do the show. So I, I think I've made it pretty clear. Not a fan of politics. In fact, as I watch people lose faith in our political institutions, that may be horrifying to some people, but to me, it's actually a very encouraging sign. That's a sign that people are actually waking up. And it actually spells <clears throat> some very authentic opportunity for the entrepreneurial revolutionaries. These are the good kind, by the way, that are, that are among us. Got an article here from, <clears throat> excuse me, Max Borders, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. Politics is dead. Now what? This is such a great essay. He lists Persia, Rome, Britain. History is a record of cycles of growth and decline. And then he asks, is America any exception? If indeed we're starting to see the first perturbations of the American fall, then we'd better be prepared. But preparation, he says, needn't all be canned food and stocked basements. It could simply be a collective readiness to undertake an enormous restructuring. Now, Max Border says, I've been calling the death of politics for nearly a decade now. I don't need to repeat that sorry appraisal here. He actually links to uh, his, his previous essay where he talks about the death of politics. He says, it's becoming more evident to everyone. Content about how people have lost faith in the institutions has become a cottage industry. But has anyone considered the possibility that the institutions has, have outlived their usefulness. See, technocracy always fails in time, yet the powerful cling to power. So anyone who claims politics is dead needs to answer the question, okay, now what? The answer is entrepreneurship, and that, of course, includes innovation. Our mantra is criticize by creating, which he says I sh- shamelessly stole from educational entrepreneur Michael Strong, who stole it from Michelangelo. And he says, you should steal it too. It might well be the mantra of this renaissance. So here's the idea. If you're engaged in politics, policy, and punditry, you're probably not moving the needle. At best, you're running as fast as you can to stay in the same place. At worst, you're proving why people have lost faith in the institutions. To make enduring change, you have to do something hard. You have to create something that constituencies adopt so readily It puts another crack in the institutions. Indeed, instead of trying to preserve the institutions, let them sink into the dark waters of time. Now, here he talks about the practices. He says, elsewhere, I've referred to this more active process as subversive innovation. But instead of referring to it in passing, he says, I want to take the opportunity to describe it as a set of basic practices. Some will be familiar, perhaps, but I hope some will be new. Number one, he says, embrace Michael Strong's law and corollary. So here's Strong's Law. Ceteris paribus, properly structured free enterprise, always results over time in higher quality, lower cost, and more customized products and services. Here's Strong's Corollary. This theorem applies just as forcefully to the entrepreneurial supply of law, governance, community, housing, education, health care, happiness, and well-being as it does to technology. Our world suffers because we've not allowed entrepreneurial initiative to fully address humanity's most important issues. Now, he says, got that? 
If not, feel free to read it again, which I'm linking to this in the show notes, so you can you can do that if you need to. Number two, he talks about developing a sharp customer focus from which you reverse engineer everything else. First, you have to find your customer and become intimate with her need slash desire. Then, what problem are you solving for your customer? What value are you creating for your customer? Now, if your answer trails off or involves too many interconnected abstractions, systems, or customer types, you're probably building a sky castle. You must stay laser-focused on the customer's needs and desires at all times. There's nothing more important. Number three, let purpose be your boss, but let profit be your profit. Huh? Huh? Two different spellings. Even nonprofit organizations have to earn revenues over costs to survive. So first, you have to establish your organization's purpose. And that purpose should be a solemn and severe master you slavishly serve. Profit, then, is a measurement of your success using resources wisely in serving that purpose. Now, he says, note, if your organization's purpose is at odds with customer focus, you must realign. To the extent your organization is unprofitable, it's an indicator something is wrong. That is, you're wasting resources or your organization is undercapitalized. The hard part of being an entrepreneur is to know the difference. Still, profit isn't evil. It's an indication that you can sustainably create customer value. Number four, what is the least you can do? That is, what is a prototype or minimum viable product that you can take to market quickly for a low-cost test? Now, if the primary objective is satisfying your customers' wants and needs, then not far behind should be to fail early and cheaply so you can go back to the drawing board. If you find early success, you can build on that success by taking your venture to scale or recruiting someone who can. Never try to boil the ocean and don't fall for calls to moonshot thinking. It's mostly BS. Number five, locate the failure and do better than the legacy system. Most entrepreneurs want the path of least resistance, so they're going to steer clear of heavily regulated industries or sectors with giant incumbents. No more. Even areas the centralists claim are to be provided by the state, things like welfare, money, and governance itself, are the areas hungry for subversive innovation. Dare to go into those areas, even if you have to solve a problem within some legal gray area, kind of like Uber did. If you can solve part of a bigger problem, you can still create value and build upon that success later. Next, he says, expect failure, but keep going. Failure can be demoralizing, but it's part of a bigger process of experimentation and discovery. If you can set up your venture to fail early and cheaply, such will be less taxing on your body and soul. Patience and persistence will put you in a better position to succeed in the long run. Number seven, find your complementary team. No one should try to undertake a venture alone. A basic set of entrepreneurial types is visionaries, implementers, and marketers. Visionaries use their big brains to see the big picture and keep their eyes on the horizon, but they can get lost in the details. Implementers make the trains run on time and can execute the details, but can let details and processes distract from the vision. Marketers understand people and are savvy at communicating the value both inside and outside the organization, but they can't always make things happen. Together, though, these three types can make magic. Number eight, always be branding. When it comes to branding, most entrepreneurs are the visual equivalent of those poor souls on American Idol who nobody told they're tone deaf. The difference is nobody finds it funny. Your brand is your front door. It speaks volumes before you can. 
Your brand should do 80% of the communication before you ever enter the picture. Some entrepreneurs sally forth with a potentially valuable product or service, but they only know how to be a transmitter. They haven't a clue how to think like a receiver. Now, to be a receiver, you put yourself in the minds of your customers and you ask yourself, how are they likely to interpret what you are transmitting? So you have to brand everything, starting with your investor deck. And always be sure to practice the KISS simple. KISS principle, rather. Keep it simple, stupid. If you think you might be brand blind, like tone deaf, find someone capable of helping you develop your brand. Now, I realize this may not be for everybody, but this, this strikes me as some really good advice. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. I beat the drum for food storage for a lot of years. And, and I don't just beat the drum. I actually practice what I preach. I thrive on knowing that I have the equivalent of a small supermarket there in my storeroom. Or if I need something, whether it's food, whether it's soap, whether it's cooking oil... I have something I can turn to, but what really gives me peace of mind is knowing that I have long-term food storage, stuff that can sit there for 20, 25 years and still be good and still be consumable and, and tasty. That's important, too. So if this is something that sounds like it would bring peace to you, help you sleep better at night, not knowing what, uh, what exactly lies ahead, well, I would encourage you go to the website, lifesavingfood.com. Check out what they have to offer. Whether you're looking for big or small solutions, they can help you. And you'll get a 20% discount, no sales tax, and free delivery. There's a little added incentive to make that happen. Lifesavingfood.com. So I'm sharing this article from uh, Max Borders. Politics is dead, now what? And he is, is listing off a number of rules that innovators and entrepreneurs could be taking advantage of in order to use these uncertain times where there's a lot of shifting and uh, institutions, people are losing faith in them. By the way, that's perfectly in keeping with that fourth turning methodology. That's one of the signs of a fourth turning is the institutions that people counted on, they no longer count on. In fact, those institutions often are swept away and replaced with something else. The question is, is it going to be better or worse than what we had before? See, and that's something where you and I can actually have a say. So he's been listing off all these different uh, rules that go along with how to get out there and create something in an entrepreneurial revolution. Number nine in his, uh, his suggested rules here, think locally, but you might have to act globally. Max Border says subversive innovators sometimes dream up their ventures in jurisdictions hostile to their goals. Can you deploy your innovation in another more hospitable jurisdiction? Even within the U.S., some states are better than others, especially for decentralized finance. See Wyoming. Other jurisdictions are better about certain kinds of secrecy. See Nevada. However, if you're thinking about innovating in ways that challenge the status quo, you might consider any number of offshore locations. Establishing a winning venture in another jurisdiction could help create the future for the one you're in. 
And number 10 in his rules, he says, remain steadfast. Entrepreneurship has an associated set of virtues. One of the most important is courage. There will be predators and parasites that threaten to tear down what you build. Sadly, they are the enemy. Your effort to serve customers and create value is part of the new great war. But don't be afraid. Instead, imagine letting the centralists win that war. Living in a world of surveillance, control, and equal poverty should instill more fear than functionaries' threats and activists' online paroxysms. Gird your loins and prepare to criticize by creating. And he finishes with with one of the most mind-expanding concepts that I've seen in, in quite a while. Subject, citizen, customer. Now, the word customer has a neutral or sometimes negative connotation. It can be associated with the commercial domain in general or specifically to some sleazy car salesman who promises great customer service. But when we consider the three major types of relationships between an individual and an organization, it should open our eyes. I've never had this explained this way, but this makes perfect sense. If you are a subject, the primary relationship is one of obedience. If you are a citizen, the primary relationship is acting in an illusion of consent, then obedience. Ouch. I know, that one stung. If you are a customer, the primary relationship is one of consent. This makes sense, right? Because a customer, when they walk into a store and they're looking for shoes and they're like, all right, well, I really don't see anything that I like. It's not like the clerk in the store can pull a gun on them and say, now hold up there. You're going to buy these brown shoes. And you're not leaving the store without buying them. They can't do that. You can simply walk out the door and go find a store that sells shoes that you do like and and purchase from them. Government doesn't give you that option. Now, it does give you the illusion of consent. Well, we're going to hold an election. (laughs) In fact, we're going to hold an election that was founded on election rights and voting rights. And we control every bit of it, including, you know, limiting you to this choice between candidate A and candidate B, both of whom happen to be owned by the system. You get the picture. So, yeah, it really is an illusion of consent without actually giving you the effects of consent. Try to walk away from government. At some point, somebody will pull a gun on you and say, now hold up there. I realize that's going to upset some people, but I still think it's, it's a true statement. So there are the three different relationships. And Max Border says, such implies that the very idea of a public servant is largely a myth, and it's time to change the connotation of customer. I mean, I've, I've heard government compared to the squeegee man who will come up to your car at a stoplight in the city. While you're sitting there waiting, desperately waiting for the light to change, here comes the squeegee man muttering to himself and eh, squirting stuff on your windshield and smearing it around with his squeegee and then puts out his hand and demands payment. Eh, Give me money. Can't you see what I've done for you? Government operates with that same sense of forcing something on you that you really don't want and then demanding you pay for it or else. Now, fortunately, all the squeegee man can do is Maybe throw something at you or yell at you as you drive away when the light changes. Government will hunt you down and find a way to make you pay. And if you resist, ultimately will kill you in order to bring you into submission. Max Border says, citizens and subjects are an afterthought. Whatever stories we tell ourselves in civics class. If I am associated with a profit-seeking organization that renounces rent-seeking, trying to get its money from government... 
I must serve those who choose to associate with me. If I'm associated with a coercive state bureaucracy, I must serve a master with taxing authority, meaning men with guns and jails. Now, this rationale extends to the civil society sector as well. Yes, it can be difficult to maintain two sets of customers, donors and clients. But solving such problems makes for better entrepreneurs whose fundamental imperative is still service. Now, these are fundamentally different relationships, and the preponderance of one or the other gives rise to the health or dysfunction of society. That's why a revolution in entrepreneurship, subversive innovation, is the tip of the spear for societal change. Never forget that you are launching your attack from the highest moral ground of all, consent. Your enemies will have to fight you from the low perch of compulsion. Yeah, I admit it. I'm, I'm a big fan of the free market, and I'm especially a fan of consent versus compulsion. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I think this is worth uh, a couple of reads. I hope it's something that uh, you will, will take to heart. Speaking of take to heart, I want to share with you some of the best advice that I have ever received. And I think this is necessary advice for anybody who is determined to stand up and speak out because the times demand that they stand up and speak out. And it's the advice to never complain, never explain. Now, this is an article that was published, oh, I guess about six years ago on the website Art of Manliness. And if you have ever had to deal with critics, this is going to be some of the most useful information you will ever find. Never complain, never explain. Brett McKay, actually Brett and Kate McKay, the authors of this article, say this pithy little maxim was first coined by the British politician and Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli and adopted as a motto by many other high-ranking Brits, from members of royalty to Navy admirals to fellow Prime Ministers Stanley Baldwin and Winston Churchill. The maxim well encompasses the stiff upper-lipped lipness of the Victorian age, but the uh, timeless wisdom it contains has made a guiding mantra made it a guiding mantra of powerful, confident, accountability-prizing men throughout the modern day. Now, the nevers, of course, aren't ironclad, and they don't apply to every situation, and even where they should apply, they can be hard to follow through on. But understanding when, where, and why to apply this maxim is truly a great help in becoming a more autonomous and assertive man or woman, because I'm, I'm thinking this would apply to both. It's four words pack a lot of truth in a small space and work on a few different levels. So let's unpack them, starting with the meat of the matter, never explain, and then working backward. Now they begin with a quote here from Albert Hubbard, never explain. Your friends do not need it, and your enemies will not believe you anyway. This is where I'm going to tap the brakes and just ask you, you know, as you as you have probably just gone about living your life, you've you've more than likely had to explain things to people. Why haven't you been vaxxed? Why haven't you, you know, put on a mask? Why haven't you done this or done that? And there are some people that uh, deserve an explanation, but there are a lot of people who don't. Could you make yourself look weaker? Could you put yourself unwittingly under their control merely by trying to come up with an explanation that you hope they would find acceptable maybe you don't need their permission at all we'll come back to this wonderful article it's linked in the show notes at the show.com stay with us this 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My fellow wrong, wrong thinker. Sorry, I had a little moment of puberty love. <sighs> Must be something going around. You guys heard of any bugs or anything that anybody's been dealing with? All right, just checking. So this is the article, Never Complain, Never Explain. And Brett and Kate McKay start with Never Explain. And they tell the story of Winston Churchill as a young cavalry officer, always looking for ways to get to the front and experience battle firsthand. And with much persistence, he eventually secured a position in the field as a personal assistant to Sir William Lockhart, who was overseeing the British's military campaigns in what's now Pakistan. Now, when Churchill first joined the general staff, he behaved and was treated as befitted his youth and subordinate station. But one day he saw an opportunity to offer a bit of advice that led to him being taken into the much more confidential circles of the staff and treated as if I were quite a grown-up. See, Churchill had heard that the general in his headquarters had been hurt and angry to hear that a newspaper correspondent who had been sent home from their camp had published a very critical article about one of their recent campaigns. The officers smarted at what they felt were unfair charges, and the chief of staff had written up a thorough rebuttal and mailed it off to the newspaper to be published. Churchill spoke up at once and tried to convince the staff that such a move was ultimately a bad idea and that the piece ought to be intercepted before it was ever printed. Here's what Churchill said. I said that it would be considered most undignified and even improper for a high officer on the staff of the army in the field to enter into newspaper controversy about the conduct of, of operations with a dismissed war correspondent that I was sure the government would be surprised and the war office furious that army staff were expected to leave their deference to their superiors or to the politicians, and that no matter how good the arguments were, the mere fact of advancing them would be everywhere taken as a sign of weakness. Now, in this, as in many things, Churchill turned out to be quite prescient and wise. Offering explanations does indeed demonstrate weakness for several reasons. First of all, explaining gives power to another. When someone criticizes or insults you, gets offended by something you do or say, or questions your decisions and why you've chosen to do something a certain way, it's natural to want to explain why you think they're wrong, especially if said party has impinged on your integrity or honor, and some kind of response may indeed be in order. Now, if that person is someone you know and respect as an equal, someone you consider to be inside your circle of honor, and they've said something intelligent and interesting, you may want to explain yourself in order to invite further discussion. If they're your boss or a customer, you may need to offer an explanation to hold on to your job or to hold on to their business. If there's someone you care about, a loved one or a friend, and you've had a gross miscommunication, you may want to explain yourself in an effort to preserve the relationship. But if the critical, offended, slash skeptical party is someone you don't know personally, like a stranger online or the public in general, someone you don't care about or you don't respect as an equal, someone who shouldn't have any say or sway over your choices, well, then taking the time to explain why they're wrong or why you've made the decisions you have is ill-advised. To be concerned with what someone outside your circle of respect thinks is to allow yourself to be pulled down to his or her level. 
See, explaining yourself is essentially an attempt to seek another's approval. It shows you're stung that they've withdrawn that approval and desirous of getting it back. When you show that you care about an opinion that you and any observers know you really shouldn't, you show weakness. In losing the fight between trying to ignore them and craving the catharsis of engagement, you demonstrate a failure of self-control. Further, when a chucklehead elicits a response, you validate his importance. He's made you do something against your better judgment. You've given to him two of your most precious resources, your time and attention. You've gone from the offensive to the defensive. His status goes up and yours goes down. Now, people, whether irrationally angry customers, estranged family members, or a controlling significant other, will often demand explanations for what you do. They'll say, you're weak if you don't offer one. But this is the cleverest of ploys. By targeting your pride, they get you to hand over your power. Now, of course, restraining yourself from responding to someone who's goading you on is easier said than done. As someone who's subjected to a constant barrage of feedback on my work day after day, Brett McKay says I'm able to find that I'm, I'm able to successfully ignore about 98% of it. It's when someone says something that impinges on my honor, even when I know they're not part of my honor group, or when they seem like a dude that I can have a good debate with, that's when I get into trouble. Now, when someone's clearly off their rocker, it's easy to ignore them. That's really out there. And when someone has something critical but intelligent to say, engaging them can actually be interesting and instructive. But it's the people who greatly distort who you are, what you did, what you said, but mix together sensible-sounding discourse with nuggets of crazy who prove the most irresistible. They almost sound like someone you could have a reasonable discussion with. It almost seems like you could explain to them why they're objectively off the mark. But as it invariably turns out, and this is a lesson he says I've had to learn over and over, if someone's mindset or mentality is such that they're able to grossly misinterpret something, no amount of explanation, no matter how thorough and well-reasoned, is going to change their mind. Quite to the contrary, they'll simply dig in their heels all the more. So never complain, never explain, doesn't necessarily mean not saying anything to your doubters complainers and critics, but limiting your response to a sharp rejoinder. Disraeli, in fact, formulated his maxim after hearing the advice of fellow politician Lord Lyndhurst, who said, never defend yourself before a popular assembly except with and by retorting an attack. Thus, a short, pithy rebuttal or humorous yet withering sarcastic quip, Churchill, by the way, was a master of these, may be in order. Then you turn heel and don't engage further. Of course, even a simple retort may draw you into an argument you never wanted to have, which often makes complete silence the best possible response. In fact, nothing drives someone nipping at your heels crazier than to have their questions and demands go utterly ignored and unacknowledged. This is very sound advice. And for for many years when I wrote for St. George News, um, I developed a little cadre of people who would follow me around from column to column. I, at one point, I was publishing two columns a week, and, and just, it just doesn't matter what I said. If I said, you know, the sky is blue, they would rush, no, the sky is light blue, you know, and just do everything in their power to try to, to goad me into some kind of a response. And sadly, in the early years, I would sometimes take the bait. But I found that by applying this advice about don't... Uh, Don't respond to the one who's nipping at your heels, that yappy little dog that's down there trying to get your attention. If it's not somebody whose opinion you trust, if it's not somebody who's there to offer constructive criticism, 
You owe them nothing. And it was really interesting. There, boy, there was one in particular. Uh, I don't know. I, I hope this person has found an outlet to, to be heard. But, man, they would, they would write these long, incredible, expansive, you know, explanations of why Hyde is wrong and an extremist and so forth and, and just dare me to respond. And I never did. And you could see it driving. I mean, they started coming up with conspiracies. Well, you know, I think Hyde is actually a, a a secret commenter on here, and I haven't been able to prove it yet, but I have my hunch that it's, you know, that he's got some kind of a game afoot. And I'm like, yeah, the game afoot is you're spinning your wheels and you're pushing buttons that are connected to nothing. And by not giving a response, I was denying this individual the reaction that he or she was so desperately looking for. Now, if it sounds like it took some pleasure in it, I did. It was it was satisfying to see them have a come apart, but at the same time, I was applying some very good knowledge here, which is don't explain yourself to people for whom it really makes no difference. Explaining demonstrates a lack of confidence in your choices, your your creations and your principles. And explanations can also turn very easily into excuses. Now, as far as never complain, I'm not really going to have time to get into this part of, of the essay, but I would really recommend go to my show notes at the com and read this for yourself. One of the reasons you don't want to complain is because uh, you can talk yourself into, uh, into defeat. You can actually snatch, uh, you know, victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, you can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory actually too. Don't complain in the sense that uh, if, if it's just, you know, I'm, we all want to vent, right? When things don't go right, we just need to get it off our chest. But if you're looking to convince people about something, action will beat complaining every single time. Again, this is one of the most useful essays that I have ever read. I've shared it before with my listeners, but I assume there are probably some new ears that, uh, that are hearing this for the first time. If you want to be an autonomous individual, you want to learn how to trust your judgment, this is one of the things you got to get your mind around. There are some people that you simply do not owe an explanation to. Anybody with that gotcha mentality who's just looking for a weakness, looking for, for some excuse to pounce. Ah, you misspelled this word. Ah, therefore everything you've said is wrong. You're not going to be able to reason with such people. Don't dignify them with a response. Let them fade into irrelevance and focus on the ones who are listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you are ready to engage in some wrong think, nay, to revel in wrong think, my friend, you have found the right place. It's just a matter of learning to think clearly and independently, which means you do not have to agree with me or any of the guests or commentators that I share on this program. I only offer the insights and the articles that I publish in my daily show notes just 
to, to get people thinking outside of the partisan box. I believe that politics has infected way too much of our public consciousness. I think too many people have been trained to believe that uh, politics is the source of everything that matters. I beg to differ. I think there's a lot of stuff going on where you and I have great influence, but we're, we're kind of blinded to it in the sense that we think, well, we've got to, first of all, we've got to get the right person in the right office, and then, then we can start to make a difference. No. Politics is one facet of many facets that make up our somewhat complicated lives. And the sooner we stop spending all of our moral and spiritual energy trying to prop up political solutions the quicker we're likely to happen on those solutions that will actually change people's lives. Yes, it's at a smaller level. It's not going to make headlines. But you got to be okay with that. Because it's, those, it's the cumulative or aggregate uh, collection of those small acts that ultimately change the world for the better. And it's something you can do wherever you happen to be standing right at this moment. So with that in mind, let's jump right in. I've uh, become a bit of a fan of Jordan B. Peterson just because I'm a fan of people who are unafraid to speak the truth. And, you know, some people take great uh, pride in, well, you know, Jordan B. Peterson had a problem with, what's it, benzodiazepine? I can't remember. It's some some kind of uh, pharmaceutical drug that he became addicted to um, with the consequence of you can't just, you know, well, I'll stop taking it. It will kill you if you go off it, you know, too quickly. And so he went through a lot of just real difficult times. But he has been a very steady voice and possibly one of the most impactful voices of this generation. And he has great advice, like make your bed. In other words, you want to start making the world a better place? Start by making your bed. Get your own stuff together. Sort your own crud out first. Then you can start looking at ways to improve the lives of other people or to help other people get their stuff together. One of the places where he's been especially vocal has been regarding vaccine mandates. Now, my understanding is that uh, Jordan B. Peterson actually did get the vaccine pretty early on, but he's become a very vocal critic of Justin Trudeau's mandatory vax policies in Canada because the government simply would not leave him alone. It wasn't enough for him to get the vax. You know, uh, Peterson says, nope, they kept coming after me. And he really has been uh, not very happy about it. Patrick Carroll, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has an article where Jordan Peterson calls out Justin Trudeau as Canada considers mandatory vaccination. Apparently, Quebec is already moving forward with a tax on unvaccinated citizens. Patrick Carroll says Jordan Peterson has become an increasingly outspoken critic of COVID lockdowns and mandates in recent weeks. Using his large platform on Twitter to push back against the restrictions in Canada around the world. He's even called for civil disobedience in some cases, warning that even more freedoms could be lost if people don't stand up for their rights. Peterson wrote in a, na- uh, a recent column for the uh, National Post We are pushing the complex systems upon which we depend to their breaking point. The cure has become worse than the disease. Though Peterson has been critical of many politicians, he has been particularly disparaging of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who's been an enthusiastic supporter of strict public health measures since the beginning. Peterson said recently, tagging the Prime Minister, these mandates bring out the petty authoritarian and everyone tasked with enforcing them. Not a good practice in a free society. Now, some of his other comments to the Prime Minister have been even more pointed. 
So Justin Trudeau had tweeted, it's been just over a year since these doses arrived. In that time, a lot of you have done your part. Over 80% of eligible Canadians are fully vaccinated and our vaccination rates are among the highest in the world. But we've got to keep going. So please get your shots. And Jordan B. Peterson responded, it's been over a year since a quick return to normal was promised once the vaccines arrived in Canada and were widely distributed and used. Where's normal, Justin Trudeau? Why would anyone trust you? Or why would anyone trust anything you say now? Wow. He calls out uh, Trudeau as a flip-flop scum rat. Okay, that's name-calling, but uh, wow. And then here's another tweet from Trudeau. If you're taking care of some last-minute Christmas shopping this week, here's something else you can do, or something else you can add to your list, a booster. If you're eligible for one but haven't gotten it yet, please do so now. And if you don't have your first or second dose, now's the time to get it. Jordan B. Peterson simply said, up yours, Justin Trudeau, seriously. You'd have to kill me first. Okay, so it's not the most diplomatic approach, but... This is a guy who is followed by millions of people. And, uh, you know, you got to think the political class is getting a little bit nervous. Life would sure be a lot easier if Jordan Peterson was uh, either shutting up or on our side. But when he's speaking out against them, he's speaking for a lot of other people who don't have as big of a platform or as big of a footprint as he does. Now, Patrick Carroll says Peterson's ire is not without cause. COVID restrictions have been fairly strict in Canada for much of the pandemic. Many provinces have imposed more stringent measures in recent weeks in, respond to, in response rather, to surging case numbers. Quebec, for instance, imposed a curfew from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. starting on December 31st. Now, this is the second time the province has imposed a curfew, the first being from January 9th to May 28th, 2021. Quebec also recently announced they would be imposing a significant tax on those who choose not to get vaccinated, citing health care costs. Ontario, for its part, reintroduced a slew of restrictions in early January that had previously been lifted. These include gathering limits, temporary closures of many businesses, mandatory remote learning for all public and private schools, and a pause on all non-emergent and non-urgent surgeries and procedures. Although all of these measures have significant ramifications, the pause on certain surgeries and procedures is particularly worrisome because dying as a result of delayed care is a very real risk in Canada. And finally, in case that wasn't enough justification for Peterson's acerbic comments, we can now add another item to the list. The growing discussion about making vaccination mandatory. Though that topic has been largely considered a fringe debate up to this point, The conversation is now making its way into mainstream Canadian politics. I personally think we will get there at some point, said Canada's health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, in early January, referring to mandatory vaccination. Not now. I don't think we are there yet, but I think think discussions need to be had about mandatory vaccinations because we have to get rid of COVID-19. Now, unsurprisingly, Peterson is having none of it. He tweets out, leave us alone, Justin Trudeau. What you are doing is utterly unconscionable. This is going to cause more grief and misery than you have the courage and intelligence to imagine. Now, fortunately, Peterson's not the only one pushing back. There have been regular protests in major cities like Montreal and Toronto, and political leaders like Maxime Bernay continue to oppose the increasingly authoritarian measures being introduced. A group of Canadian lawyers has also started to protest the COVID regime more actively by signing the Free North Declaration, 
which outlines their concerns regarding civil liberties, vaccine passports, and the censorship of doctors, among other things. To date, the declaration has been signed by 555 lawyers and more than 81,000 concerned citizens. Now, even those who are pro-vaccine are expressing sympathy for their unvaccinated compatriots. As Norman Doig explains in his thoroughly researched essay, Needlepoints, there are many good reasons to be distrustful of the politicians and corporations that are spearheading COVID mitigation measures. So as far as the worldview behind it all, through the mandates, though those lockdowns and mandates may be severe, they're all supposedly justified in the name of public health. Now, that may sound reasonable enough, but the term public health is actually a signal of sorts, one that points to the pernicious worldview underlying the entire COVID regime. This worldview goes by many names. Sometimes it's called public health. Other times it's called the public interest, the general welfare, or the common good. Now, the phrases may differ, but they're all rooted in collectivism, the idea that the group should take precedence over the rights of the individual. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, one significant problem is that the public interest doesn't actually exist. Consider the words of Ayn Rand, quote, the common good or public interest is an undefined and undefinable concept. There is no such entity as the tribe or the public or where the tribe or the public or society is only a number of individual men. Nothing can be good for the tribe as such. Good and value pertain only to a living organism, to an individual living organism, not to a disembodied aggregate of relationships. It's funny. There's a lot of people who really hate Ayn Rand, probably because she was so harsh about uh, collectivism. But she's also right in this case. That's something they can't easily swat away. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just finishing up an article here from Patrick Carroll, published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. That would be fee.org. Yes, this is one of my primary resources for wrong thinkers. I actually have a special page on my website, Resources for Wrong Thinkers, and I would encourage you to, you know, check it out for yourself. These are some of the news aggregators and regular sites that publish numerous columns every single week that offer insight, particularly non partisan and non-agendized insight into current events. So we had a quote in the last segment from Ayn Rand about the common good or public interest being an undefined, undefinable concept because really, good and value can only pertain to living individual organisms, not to disembodied aggregate relationships. So when you hear someone invoking, well, this is all for the public health, they're, they're trying to uh, word weasel you into a collectivist straitjacket. And Patrick Carroll says it follows. Public health doesn't exist either, which actually makes a lot of sense. Societies don't get sick. Only individuals get sick. Health is something that concerns people, not populations. So contrary to the collectivist paradigm, we're not some herd to be coddled and immunized and protected in the name of some greater good. We are individuals with rights. Now, that may sound selfish, but it's really not. What's actually selfish is demanding that other people bend over backwards to accommodate your personal risk tolerance. 
Now, he says, notably, the proper response to individual health risks is individual responsibility. Hey, that's a virtue that Jordan Peterson has popularized with his exhortation to clean your room. Now, this may seem easy enough, but note the emphasis. It's not clean your neighbor's room, nor is it force your neighbor to clean your room or force your neighbor to clean their own room. The point is to focus on the things within your own purview. Don't try to change or fix or control other people to make your life better. You know, the most ill-at-ease people, the people who I see who are absolutely not at peace are the ones who haven't figured out that trying to control others will not bring them happiness. It never can bring them happiness. They're the most miserable people that I know. Got to focus on what's within your purview, just like Patrick Carroll says. And he says that might be difficult, and it may be even scary, but it's a far nobler path than the alternative, and it's one that lockdown proponents should seriously consider. Now, I want to follow this up with a question, and that is, uh, why do so many people seem oblivious to our current loss of freedoms? Does it seem sometimes that, that people are just not seeing what's right in front of our eyes, or maybe it's, it could just be that I'm imagining the whole thing. I have to allow for the possibility I could totally be wrong. But I'm consciously trying to pay attention. I'm trying to maintain situational awareness of what's going on around me. And I suspect you wouldn't be listening to this program if you weren't doing so as well. How can people fail to see what's happening? And particularly, Jeff Thomas has a great take on the boiling the frog analogy and how it applies to us today. Now, he starts with a quote from 1984 by George Orwell, which says, There was, was, of course, no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment, how often or on what system. The thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire, whatever they wanted to. You had to live, did live from habit that became instinct in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard and except in darkness, every move was scrutinized. End quote. Well, that now famous date that Orwell chose, 1984, is actually of no real significance. He simply reversed the last two digits of the year in which he wrote the book, 1948. Orwell concerned himself less with timeline than with concept. And that concept has been chillingly accurate in its foresight, says Jeff Thomas. He says the quote above should ring alarm bells in today's world, particularly for those who live in the U.S., for the U.S. government leads the world in the development of surveillance of its people. Today, the U.S. government is in the process of completing a massive electronic surveillance network that encompasses all telephone calls, all computer-driven communication, and all banking transactions. Quite a tribute to Orwell's big brother. Now, he says, we have in the past predicted that the surveillance net eventually will expand to include all monetary transactions by U.S. residents, possibly through the replacement of the paper dollar by an electronic money system, allowing the U.S. government to ultimately have knowledge of every aspect of the economic activities of U.S. residents and therefore control over those activities. Now, the excuses given for such surveillance Uh, is that it's to protect America from terrorism. Now, this notion is a wonderful invention, as terrorism can be imagined to be small or large and can occur at any time, anywhere in the country. 
Further, if there are no actual occurrences, the government can create false flag incidents as easily and often as they are needed. So the boogeyman of terrorism is particularly useful, as terrorism is faceless. No invasion is necessary. A terrorist could be anyone, even your next-door neighbor. And indeed, the government computers are programmed to pay especially close heed to specific words and phrases like freedom or patriotism. Should your next-door neighbor use such words in his emails? Well, he's more likely to be flagged. Now, the degree of surveillance that Orwell described in 1984 has not yet been reached, but it's not far off. Most importantly, though, the most essential aspect of its implementation has already been overcome, and that is the aspect of popular acceptance. The American people, in the main, have successfully been sold the concept that it's necessary in order to keep Americans, quote, safe from terrorism. Now, with this green light, the U.S. government is moving rapidly toward the completion of the implementation of full surveillance. And Jeff Thomas says if any American doubts that this is coming, he need only ask himself whether the present wiretaps, warrantless house raids, and TSA shakedowns would have been possible only a generation ago. He says Americans are already being conditioned to understand that if they object to these intrusions, that only makes them more suspect. Citizens are already being encouraged to report any suspicious activity they observe in their fellow citizens, or indeed, even in their own families. It's almost as if 1984 had been used as a guide in creating the new USA. Now, of course, it's admittedly easy for non-Americans like Jeff Thomas, such as he says, such as myself, to criticize. But he says, we lose nothing by suggesting that those who are in a country that is in a state of dramatic decline plan their exits whilst it is still possible. After all, we are not the ones who would be leaving our home, job, and possibly family members behind. We are, in fact, already comfortably settled in our own countries, countries that may actually be thriving and promising us a positive future. And he says there's another factor that makes it easy for us. Those Americans that we do meet are generally those who have already left, who've plucked up their courage and made an exit to friendlier, more promising shores. Not surprisingly, they tend to be very positive people. Now, on the other hand, those who remain in the U.S. are surrounded by others who, at least at present, have chosen to remain. Therefore, to actually entertain the idea of escaping the oppression of an overreaching government, not to mention a collapsing economic system and perpetual warfare, is a lonely pursuit indeed. To anyone to actually, for anyone to actually raise himself up to see the forest for the trees is in itself a major feat. To actually conceive of and then plan an actual exit to greener pastures, well, that's an even greater one. Now, he says this is not to say the U.S. is alone in its deterioration toward a totalitarian state. The countries of the EU and many other of the former free world are also in decline. However, the U.S. does lead the way in its Orwellian surveillance. And at this point, the U.S. government does not even deny its surveillance. In the Orwellian tradition, they merely state that if you have nothing to hide, you do not need to fear your government. And just as in 1984, that fear is exactly the object. People who live in fear are easily controlled. They stay put and they take whatever is dished up. As Thomas Jefferson observed, when the government fears the people, that is liberty. When the people fear the government, that is tyranny. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Now, this message should be of interest to anyone listening to me within the entire state of Utah because Heather's team at Patriot Home Mortgage, of course, is an Eagle housing lender. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And best of all, she can help you get the home loan you need without delay. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even if you want to uh, refinance your existing mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience and the stability and the clout to get you that loan without delay. Call her at 435-703-4522. Stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. It's a great time of year to be in St. George, I'll tell you that. And tell Heather and her crew thank you for being sponsors of this program. So is a nation a society that has a soul? Ooh, there's a deep question. Probably better asked sitting around a campfire with friends, right? Well, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton really thought that, yeah, that's, that's probably the case. And I've got an article here from Jeff Minnick from Intellectual Takeout that shares some of Chesterton's wisdom to illustrate the dual and possessed personality haunting America. Now, in, in sensitivity to people who are dealing with loved ones who have, you know, multiple personalities or other, other forms of mental illness, you know, this isn't uh, done tongue-in-cheek, ha, 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 you know, let's make fun of it. In fact, I watched a video the other day. This was, uh, this was a person having a conversation with herself, although I'm, she's probably going to be upset because I would be misgendering. There were two very distinct personalities in this individual, and the really creepy thing was, as she's having this, this conversation before her phone, her voice changes. And I mean, it legit sounded like a totally different person. One sounds very much like a young woman. And the other sounded more like uh, an adolescent male. But it's, it's the same person who's speaking. And they're talking about when we realized there were two of us here in this same body. And then we fell in love with each other. And I just was looking at that going, wow, that's, that is straight up possession. And yet uh, it's, it's very trendy, too, because, hey, you know, it was all about uh, how do we get our pronouns right when there's two of us that we have to worry about? And it's like, OK, so I guess they, them may not be so far out of the realm of possibility. But keep in mind, we're, we're talking what looks like legit schizophrenia as opposed to, you know, you need to respect this person's uh, existence and, and honor their, their, uh, their feelings and, you know, essentially be drafted into their what, whatever their, their fantasy is. But let's apply this dual and possessed personality haunting America to our society. Jeff Minnick says, in Remembering the Right, the second volume of collected articles from Chronicles magazine on the lives and work of notable conservative teachers, writers, and philosophers, we find a piece about G.K. Chesterton. Now, reading about this man of letters, you name the genre, and Chesterton probably wrote at least one book that would qualify for membership. He says, he always, Chesterton always delights me, as do his army of aphorisms. In the case of this article, here's one that caught my eye. Quote, a nation is a society that has a soul. When a society has two souls, there is and ought to be civil war. For anything which has dual personality is certainly mad and probably possessed by devils. End quote. I'm telling you, after watching that video on Twitter of this individual having a conversation with herself, whew, Chesterton 
Chesterton was right. And and Jeff Minnick says, given our country's divisions, Chesterton's observations offer both wisdom and a warning. Now, Minnick says, both of us, most of us, rather, would agree that a properly fun- functioning nation has a soul, a core of beliefs and customs shared by the great majority of its citizens. And, of course, these vary from place to place. The souls of Russia, India, or Japan differ radically from the soul of America. But in each instance, common values bind a people together. In recent years, however, many commentators and thinkers have proclaimed the United States a house divided, a country of blue and red states increasingly separated by their stances on everything from the role of government to the relevance of the Constitution. Some have wondered whether these divisions may bring on a civil war, while others have declared we are already living in a civil cold war. But to even raise this possibility, he says, is a step toward transforming speculation into reality. We must never hope for another civil war, as these are among the most vicious of all conflicts. But what are we to make of Chesterton's last few words, that a dual personality is certainly mad and probably possessed by devils? Now, Jeff Minnick says madness does appear to have taken hold of some Americans. In just a few short years, some in our government and schools have exchanged our ambitions to build a colorblind society for a philosophy that explicitly judges human beings by the color of their skin. Several months ago, the National School Boards Association asked the Biden administration to label the parents who were protesting school board policies as domestic terrorists. More recently, disgraced former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe backed up these claims about parents and implied that the conservative mainstream in general qualify as domestic terrorists. To make such an accusation, after 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump for president, is surely a sign of mental imbalance, says Jeff Minnick. He says the COVID-19 mess of the last two years perhaps best illustrates this madness. The lockdowns, closed schools and churches, vaccine mandates and passports, and constant torrent of deceptions and misinformation have left a lot of us a bit wacky. But that lunacy may have infected a large segment of the population in ways rarely seen in the United States. In a controversial discussion with podcaster Joe Rogan about the damage done by the pandemic, Dr. Robert Malone, a key figure in the development of the coronavirus vaccine, stated that the fear and anxiety created by our government and mainstream media have resulted in vast numbers of Americans more than willing to exchange liberty for safety and to look for scapegoats as the latest variation of the virus spreads across the land. Malone termed this phenomenon mass formation psychosis. Though Malone has been canceled for these views, a whistleblower from Great Britain now reveals that the government deliberately undertook this technique to frighten its people into obedience. And we can surmise other governments around the world, including our own, followed a similar strategy. The result? We now inhabit a world of the vaxxed and unvaxxed, where the latter are regarded as selfish and evil, which brings us to the devils mentioned by Chesterton. Minnick asks, what if those who had created this COVID psychosis had other intentions besides saving lives? What if they saw themselves as high-minded gurus who know what is best for the rest of us and intended to see that we get in step and follow those guidelines to a better society? Would they see themselves as evil? Now, he says these aren't just rhetorical questions. Surely the Nazis, the Soviets, and the Maoists never thought of themselves as evil. In all three cases, 
they believed they were creating a new type of human being and a just society. And like all ideologues, they were as blind as Homer's cyclops. So when our leaders castigate and shame the unvaccinated, or when they try to make terrorists out of ordinary Americans, they may believe they are promoting good in the world. Those who support them, tripping along without discernment or reason, make themselves their accomplices. Later, when they awaken from the spell cast over them, these followers might say, We meant no harm. Our intentions were good. And their victims might throw this old adage back at them, while the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, there's another analogy that I think may apply here, and that is the question of, can you serve two masters? I particularly think of conversations I've had with with some of my friends along religious lines, asking the question, why have so many churches in America chosen to fall into lockstep with government and other officials in, you know, embracing the COVID protocols implicitly, suggesting that people should get vaccinated, they should mask up, they should follow, you know, the, the wise advice and counsel of government leaders and, and scientists. And I don't have a good answer for you, other than it's pretty tough to serve two masters. And in this case, I think uh, our masters are Caesar and Christ. At least that's, that's what it comes down to in, in my life. Now, I know how I would answer that question as to which one of those deserves my allegiance. I'm just sad to see that uh, this is unfortunately a situation that a lot of people have put themselves into. And and to me, the saddest part is it it seems like unnecessary, an unnecessary uh, amount of division. I mean, there was a time when the churches in America were the voice of reason. Do you know why slavery ended? If you answer the Civil War, I want you to, to, to... Hold something up next to your head and then smack yourself with it because that's not the correct answer. Abolition came about because of the tireless efforts of people from the pulpits of their churches teaching and persuading the public that to keep another person in chattel bondage as a piece of property was ungodly and not keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, there were some other events that were associated with it, but that was the dynamic that drove it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to sing the praises of one of my sponsors here for a moment, and and I got to tell you, these sponsors make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. Now, if you find value in this program and the information that's shared, the encouragement that's offered, however ham-fisted it may be, please let my sponsors know that uh, you are hearing their message and tell them thank you for making it possible for me to do what I do. One of those sponsors is SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. It's the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. A family-owned business... It's been in uh, operation since 1984, has only changed hands three times. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the owners right now, and they have everything you could possibly need in terms of sewing machines, sergers, long-arm quilting machines, embroidery machines. 
They service what they sell. They actually can do free pickup and delivery during January on sewing and long arm machines that need service. They offer free delivery on all products that you purchase on their website if you live in Washington County, Utah. Even if you live in Mesquite or Cedar City, they say give them a call. They'll work out something. And they have people who teach classes, and this is cool. You buy a machine from them. So let's say you want to get into sewing. You want to learn how to make or or repair your clothing. They will teach you how to do so. They offer free classes on how to use your machine. And these classes never expire. So if you want to come back and take the class again because you forgot or you just want to refresh your course, you can do that. That is taking care of their customers. SewingQuiltingCenter.com. There's a link in the show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. Go show them some love. Well, it's been pretty clear that the feds are going to use January 6th as the cudgel to beat the American public into silent submission. Anything you say about, hey, should you guys be like, no, January 6th, remember, remember, remember. Well, Judge Andrew Napolitano has a pretty solid analysis of last week's indictment of, I think it was 11 members of the Oath Keepers for the role that they allegedly played in trashing the federal bu- the Capitol building rather, and trying to overthrow the American government, in the words of the feds. Now, it's interesting because Oath Keepers were considered to be, you know, kind of off limits. I mean, they've been at a lot of kind of pivotal events. Funny thing is, Ray Epps apparently was called to speak before the January 6th Select Committee and told them, I am not uh, a fed, to which the January 6th Committee said, okay, well, good enough. But this is the guy you can see on video multiple times telling people, we need to go into the Capitol. That's where we need to go. We need to go inside. That's where our problems are. So if he's not a Fed, man, he was missing a good opportunity. Judge Napolitano says, these are perilous times, and they're made worse by the government's political reaction to lawless behavior, which is a greater threat to personal liberty than the behavior it seeks to punish. So last week, the feds obtained an indictment of 11 members of the Oath Keepers for their role in trashing the Capitol building and attempting to interfere with the functions of government on January 6, 2021. The evidence of their guilt of trashing and obstruction is manifest. The hooligans who invaded the Capitol were lawless by any rational standard. But did they really agree to overthrow the government by force? Here's the backstory. Napolitano says the history of British monarchs staying on their inherited thrones is the history of the suppression of dissent. And the favorite tool for suppression was charging dissidents with treason. Treason was whatever threatened the government's stability from the perspective of the government. So in 1535, St. Thomas More, a former Lord Chancellor of England, the precursor to the modern Prime Minister, was convicted of treason and beheaded for remaining silent when the King and Parliament commanded him to speak. Now, the punishments for treason were horrific and always included the convict's death, often preceded by his public dismemberment. The framers of the Constitution were familiar with this history and sought to prohibit its repetition in America. They did so by defining treason in the Constitution. Quote, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. End quote. Now, treason is the only crime defined in the Constitution. James Madison, who drafted the Constitution, insisted that the definition of treason be in the founding document so that neither Congress nor the President could manipulate it to their own ends, as British monarchs and parliaments had done. Not deterred by the constitutional language they'd sworn to uphold, 
the Federalist Congress and President John Adams crafted a substitute crime in 1798 and called it sedition. It made criminal any false, scandalous, or malicious writings against the government of the United States. Now, this was intended to suppress dissent and evade the high bar established in the Constitution for proving treason. Thus, the same generation, in some cases the same human beings that had just written in the First Amendment that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, did just that. And they used it to prosecute their political opponents, including infamously Representative Matthew Lyon of Vermont, who mocked President Adams' waistline. The Federalists were so accustomed to the use of this tyrannical tool that a lame-duck Federalist Congress and President Adams repealed it after Thomas Jefferson was elected president. And while the Anti-Federalists were awaiting to to assume control of Congress, lest it be used by the incoming government against them. Yet one of Jefferson's first acts as president was to pardon Representative Lyon. In 1918, President Woodrow Wilson offered legislation to suppress dissent during World War I, and Congress enacted it. The socialist firebrand Eugene V. Debs was convicted of sedition, a conviction upheld by the Supreme Court for publicly denouncing the war. Wilson and his Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer ruthlessly used the Sedition Act of 1918 to suppress dissent. They prosecuted college students who sang German beer hall songs and read the Declaration of Independence aloud in public. Their theory was that the dissent dissuaded young men from registering for the draft and thus had the potential for impairing America's war effort and thus constituted sedition. The statute under which Debs and others were convicted is essentially the same statute under which the Oath Keepers were indicted last week. It also prohibits any conspiracy to overthrow the government by force. Now, a conspiracy is an agreement by two or more persons to commit a crime where at least one of those persons took a material step in furtherance of the agreement. But the essence of conspiracy consists of constitutionally protected behavior, speech, and thought. And that makes it legally and it makes it legally dubious and practically difficult for the government to prove. The last sedition case was brought against a Michigan militia in 2010. The indictment was dismissed by a federal judge who ruled that the defendant's hateful and threatening words and outlier agreements were protected speech and did not evince a realistic plan to overthrow the government by force. Now, in the indictment against the Oath Keepers. The feds have outlined in great detail the communications among them in the months preceding January 6th. The detail is so great that the FBI must have had an undercover agent or cooperating witness embedded in the group. And this leads to a host of other problems for the government. What did the feds know and when did they know it? How and why did they let it lead to destruction and death? I assume he's talking about Ashley Babbitt, but I could be wrong. The Oath Keepers have insisted they never intended to use violence and only wanted to make a political point, a point that the government hates. Now, Napolitano says prosecuting speech is a dangerous business. Violence is certainly not constitutionally protected, but hate speech is. As recently as 1969, a unanimous Supreme Court ruled that all innocuous speech is absolutely protected, and all speech is innocuous when there is time for more speech to rebut it. So even if the feds don't claim that the Oath Keeper defendants are somehow criminally liable for the behavior of others present at the Capitol, rather they claim that 11 persons, 11, agreed to overthrow the government by force. Now, can an agreement that's impossible to perform legally constitute a conspiracy? 
Napolitano says only those who hate the politics of that 11 people could seriously believe that it can. He says the government should only prosecute crimes that have caused harm, not words and ideas that it hates, for they are protected by the First Amendment that the government has sworn to uphold. Whose words and ideas will the feds prosecute next? And that is a very relevant question to be asking. Look, I don't agree with the people who were were protesting in the Capitol on January 6th. At least not uh, from the standpoint of let's barge in there and, you know, go about causing mischief. But to call it an insurrection or to suggest that, oh, it was a credible chance to overthrow the government. I mean, I know the political class was was panicked because for the first time, I think they really got a taste of just how fed up members of the American public are with their antics. But boy, have they wallowed in their victimhood. Man, have they played this up for all they can about how we've got to do something about it. And of course, that means turning the sights of government and weaponizing every aspect of government possible against people like you and me, who had nothing to do with any shenanigans on January 6th, but nonetheless are very distrustful that the people in government are doing anything like they're supposed to be doing. You know, guaranteeing our God-given rights, maintaining our freedoms. Yep, we're out of step with them, and therefore that makes us a threat. We do live in dangerous times. Keep tuning in. And we'll keep an eye on things for you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.